Hey y'all, this is Layla. Before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to go ahead and apologize for the wonky levels going on in the episode. Anna and I were recording under less than ideal conditions, um, so things might sound a little little crazy. Um, but I hope you stick with us, and uh, thanks for listening. Let's jump into the episode. Welcome to episode 25 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. And I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. So a bit of housekeeping before we jump into the episode. Uh, so last month, we had a five-year birthday fundraiser, and we were raising $5,000 in celebration of five years, and we are very happy to say that we actually met our goal. Um, it was a really stressful week, uh, just on our end, <laughs> um, but we are obviously thrilled that we reached our goal, and we are extremely grateful to every single person who donated to the fundraiser or uh, pledge to our Patreon and just in general, spread the word and supported us throughout the entire week. Um, so thank you so much. We couldn't have done it without any of you. And Yay. if you donated to get a mug, those are happening. We apologize for the delay. We had some technical difficulties, but those should be winging their way to you hopefully by the end of the month. But uh Yes, thank you again for donating, and you'll get your stuff soon. I promise. <laughs> it's a lady science promise. <laughs> yes, yes. I am very excited. My mother-in-law, who I'm going to be seeing at Christmas, is one of the recipients of a mug, and I'm excited to, like, take it out of her cupboard and use it for coffee. <laughs> um but uh, speaking of being places in the winter, um, guys, it is November as today, the weather today in Philadelphia reminded me. Um, and that also means that uh, one of the most problematic of holidays is just around the corner. Um, <laughs> of course, I'm talking about Thanksgiving. Um and uh, some of you out there might even be listening to this when you're on your way to visit friends and family or coming home from the weekend away. Um, and while the food is delicious, and I deeply appreciate my four-day weekend, um, as a historian, it's hard not to have a complicated relationship with this holiday, right? <laughs> Definitely. I just don't even do it anymore, and I go to the <laughs> Renaissance Fair. So, I love it. That's amazing. Yeah, so definitely. Um, as historians, a thing that we have come to understand is that Thanksgiving is a masterclass in historical myth-making. And the story most of us heard as a kid probably went something like this. The pilgrims arrived in America in 1620 and founded Plymouth Colony. They had a particularly hard first winter with very little food, and a member of a local tribe uh, taught them how to grow corn and other crops that local Native Americans had been growing for thousands of years. And thanks to this help, uh, the pilgrims had a successful harvest that fall and celebrated with a three-day feast of Thanksgiving, where settlers and Native Americans came together in peace and harmony. Oh, wow. Oh, Boise. <laughs> Now, there are many, many details that have been left out of this version of the story, and it is, in reality, a gross mischaracterization of the relationship between white colonists and the indigenous people of North America, which, of course, largely involved white people invading native lands, spreading disease, destroying the natural environment, and all-out massacring whole communities of people. But the indigenous people to the area around Plymouth, who were part of the Wampanoag Confederation, did teach the European settlers how to grow North American crops like corn. And without them, the settlement would not have survived. Um, you know, but at the same time, that didn't matter all that much to the settlers. Uh, Europeans who came to North America weren't just interested in killing indigenous people and taking their land, their favorite activity. But since the time of Columbus, all kinds of explorers and settlers have also really kind of diligently engaged in destroying, suppressing, 
blithely ignoring indigenous knowledge, European settlers to North America saw indigenous people and the, the and the knowledge that indigenous people produce as essentially worthless. Um, even when evidence to the contrary was right in front of them, even when their lives were saved by that knowledge, like the pilgrims were. Indigenous studies scholar Marie Batiste coined the term cognitive imperialism to describe this way of thinking. And it's definitely still with us today, even in the way we talk about this myth of the first Thanksgiving. Even the way we talk about uh, Squanto and uh, his compatriots teaching pilgrims to grow corn sort of often feels like the they came with this like secret magical knowledge the or that the pilgrims maybe could have figured it out on their own if they'd had enough time but they were just like in a pinch because it was cold um <laughs> um but the um wampanoag people didn't magically wake up one day knowing how to grow corn obviously uh they spent thousands of years testing perfecting and sharing agricultural practices that allowed their communities to thrive and if that isn't science, I don't know what is. And yet again and again, uh, to this very day, indigenous knowledge about the natural world is treated as unscientific or primitive or lacking in the appropriate objectivity. Uh, indigenous people around the world continue to fight cognitive imperialism in a variety of ways. And over the last few decades, uh, indigenous studies scholars have been talking about something called uh, native science, um, essentially methods of understanding the natural and physical world um, outside of sort of European Western Enlightenment traditions. Um, Gregory Cajete, who coined the phrase uh, native science, um, defines it in this way, quote, it is a metaphor for a wide range of tribal processes uh, of perceiving, thinking, acting, and coming to know that have evolved through human experiences with the natu natural world. Native science is born of a lived and storied participation with the natural landscape. It is the collective heritage of human experience with the natural world." End quote. Native science and other uh, indigenous knowledge systems are vast and complicated and varied, of course, um, and they take different forms in different parts of the world. Uh, but these knowledge systems have a few key characteristics that tend to set them apart from um, the kind of science that we are taught in schools or as it's presented in kind of white Western mainstream culture. I know that I remember in school when I did science projects that we had to follow the scientific method. Uh, you had a question that you wanted to answer. You came up with a hypothesis. You identified your variables. You ran your experiment testing one of those variables. I particularly remember that you were only supposed to test one variable, right? So if I don't know, I'm doing an experiment about how often I should water my plants. I would use the same kind of plant and the same kind of flower pot, the same kind of soil, and put them all in the same place in my house. But I would vary how often I watered each plant. Now, obviously, scientific problems outside the elementary school classroom are a lot more complicated than that. But this idea of isolating a specific variable and testing one variable at a time is baked into our mainstream idea of how science should be done. If you haven't isolated your variables, you can't trust your results. Right. But native science is rooted in sort of a much more holistic view of the world. So instead of seeing a person who's studying something as an outsider who kind of tweaks one thing about the environment and waits to see what happens and try to control all of the extraneous variables. Native science thinks of people as inherently part of an in interconnected environment, and it can't and shouldn't be teased apart in that way that we do in a kind of controlled laboratory experiment. Native science doesn't try to sort of break a problem down into its component parts and figure out cause and effect relationships. It's more interested in understanding a web of relationships among all the parts. And so another thing that makes native science different from um, mainstream Western science is the way that knowledge is recorded and shared. So if we go back to this like uh, childhood science experiment Layla, with plants, like you, if you're doing your science fair project, you choose some way to quantify which plant is doing best. Like the most successful plant is the one that grows the tallest or has the most leaves or whatever. And maybe you, so you write those numbers down in your, your little lab notebook each day. And then you, you know, 
turn them into a graph and publisher and print them out <laughs> and like <laughs> glue them to your board. And you, yeah, you make the science for a poster and you present it to the school and give your, you wear your little suit and make your presentation. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's like basically like, you know, a science fair project is not the same thing as a peer review paper, but it's, it's a miniaturized version of that simplified version of that. Um, so like both the elementary school student doing this and a professional science, your results are taken seriously because they're presented in a very particular format. Um, so the scientific method is like the steps you do to do the experiment, but it also has to do with how you present those results. Scientists run an experiment, collect data that not always, but usually it includes like a quantitative analysis or at least like some kind of quantitative component. That's you making your graph of how many leaves there are. <laughs> and then you write it up and you write your results and what conclusions you can then draw from those results. And then you publish it and peer reviewers look at it and reviewer number two drags you <laughs> to hell <laughs> and you revise and resubmit. But the point is like <laughs> there's a whole process that yeah. uh, is sort of recognized that you, that's how you go through science. But native science uh, gets communicated in forms that are uh, markedly different from this very structured process uh, that I, I think we all just had like this sense memory of like doing science fair projects as kids. Oh yeah, the, yes. The trifold cardboard yes. thing and yes. like the, the shiny cutout stencil letters that you put up there for mm -hmm. your title. Yeah. Yep. Glue the little you, you had your like hypothesis conclusion results. Yep. <laughs> and just like the so yeah, so this idea is baked in super early in how we learn about science that there is a correct way, a process to do these things and it all looks the same. Um and there are many ways that native science uh, does have its own kinds of structures, uh, but those are very different from um, the kind of Western science that we've been talking about. Uh, one big thing is that native science relies heavily on oral tradition. In the white Western world, things that aren't written down are often considered to be of less value than things that are written down. This is one of those things where it's like, once you realize it, you see how many places that is true in the world, and uh -huh. it's kind of crazy. Uh, it's it's like, it's the sea we're swimming in. Um, and that's, of course, like, even more true in science and other academic disciplines, where this process of publication or and peer review determines whether something is significant or not. And uh, relying on oral tradition um, also changes the way that we think about who has ownership over scientific knowledge. Um, so that, again, because you're publishing something, Western science um, and Western science, knowledge is really owned by an individual or the group of individuals. Um, this is why, especially in like scientific fields, like your name appearing on um, publications is super important and where they appear in the list of names is super important because of this idea of who owns this piece of knowledge. Um, and that can even get more extreme where like knowledge is patented and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a way of saying this piece of knowledge belongs to me. Um, but in native science, um, knowledge is really the set of religion and um and like the sharing of the story within a community um so it really isn't owned by one particular person um kirsten knopp described this in her article the turn toward the indigenous knowledge systems and practices in the academy um and she noted that this need to own knowledge can make indigenous communities sometimes skeptical of mainstream scientists um, because the process of taking scientific knowledge from oral tradition and turning it into a peer-reviewed article with a particular set of authors can turn knowledge into yet another thing um, that was once maybe collectively cared for by a community and is now owned by white people. Um, and if that isn't the entire story, history of <laughs> relationships between indigenous people and white people, then I don't know what is. <laughs> And indigenous knowledge doesn't always come in forms that white Westerners see as straightforward. Science and descriptions of scientific practices are often embedded in stories and myths. And those stories and myths get shared through visual art and dance and even music, what Knopf calls uh, different, quote, knowledge containers. Knopf says that if mainstream science really wants to learn from native science, 
then scientists have to learn how to read and communicate in these different forms. So one thing we haven't really talked about so far in this episode is gender, but it does, it definitely plays into this. And like, obviously, if you've been um, reading and listening to us for a while, you're probably already picking up on the parallels um, between the, some of these characteristics of native science and some of the stuff that we've talked about with feminist science. Uh, feminist science also emphasizes this kind of holistic approach to studying the world and the importance of seeking and interpreting knowledge that comes from outside of mainstream science. Um, one indigenous uh, studies scholar that has looked at this connection specifically is Kim Talbert, and we'll link to some of her work in the show notes, but this idea of challenge, like challenging the idea of like objectivity and like a single point of view, I think is something that indigenous uh, science and feminist science definitely have in common. Mm-hmm. Um, like looking for like a situated point of view instead of like a objective view from nowhere. We talked about that with uh, Tina Sika in yeah. our conservation environmentalist episode of um, feminist approaches to gender and technology and climate change. And that feminist science, as it relates to issues of the environment and conservation and climate change, really value an experiential uh, experiential science that's rooted in place. And that, that doesn't make it less objective um, at all. It really just means that it's grounded in this specific experience of this specific group of people in this specific place, which can actually give us better results than if we were looking at something that is looking at large, broad questions that they're trying to apply to everything that just kind of obscures the particular. Yeah, I think one part of the um, definition of native science that jumped out at me was this idea of it is um, born of a lived and storied participation with the natural landscape. Um, and that really reminded me of of these ideas of feminist science that we talked about with um, with Tina and with and in other contexts in lady science where um, the idea of being part of a thing doesn't mean you can't study the thing. Mm-hmm. And that is this very like there's this like idea in Western academia as a whole that you have to be the objective observer that is not part of the thing. And uh, and it's a place where a lot of um, people studying or scholars of uh, various marginalized communities like are not taken seriously. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think the idea of having a um, a science that is defined around the idea of no, you're you're part of the thing. You're not just like this separate creature from the thing that gets to see it. Um, in in this uh, idealized, careful way. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right. No. And I, I mean, I think like like turn of this 20th century anthropology is a really good example yes. of this when there was this whole movement towards like recovery archaeology or anthropology and archaeology where it's like we see they looked around and they saw indigenous cultures disappearing because of, you know, various terrible assimilation and re-education programs that were being targeted at Native American people. And so anthropologists came in and they were like, well, we need to, we need to save all of this because it's going away. And so it was still largely white anthropologists that were going into these Native American communities and not always wholly respecting the Native American customs that they were supposedly (laughs) trying to preserve, you know, so they were digging on sacred grounds where it was prohibited by that native American culture. Um, And so rarely in these cases in early anthropology, did you actually get native Americans doing anthropology for native Americans? Um, And so they rarely got to speak for themselves. Um, And so they, once Native Americans did get involved in the own recovery or preservation of their culture, that they started to ask different questions. They respected the culture of that tribe. They gave, some of them even went so far as to give co-authorship to mm-hmm. the people that they interviewed for stories um, and oral histories. And so it's a completely different perspective and a different lens of which to approach knowledge and the preservation of knowledge as well 
And I was thinking that like, you know, if I, I, I think we see a lot of like skepticism about um, indigenous knowledge being kind of incorporated into like mainstream science. I'm thinking of like the, of course, again, the like fem- feminist glaciology paper and there's like the incredible backlash to the idea that like someone who lived near a glacier might like have noticed how it changed over the years right things like that um but i think there's also this like we see like representations of um indigenous or native um knowledge in popular culture a lot Uh and it's usually in the form of like Oh yes, well the locals say that this place is haunted and <laughs> haunted, grave- haunted Indian graveyard. Yeah, exactly. And then right, right. the heroes of the story come and like debunk whatever the story is yeah. about this place. And so I think we like we're already being like culturally conditioned um, by the kind of media and popular culture that we consume about this. That like anything that. <laughs> non-white people have to say about the places where they live if it sounds even just a little bit strange to western ears is like superstitious hokum and like Mm -hmm. cannot be trusted uh and we're just like trained to understand that as the essential kind of knowledge relationship uh between you know white people between colonizers and the colonized and Mm -hmm. i think it's really hard to get out from under that because we also we also really like to consume like indigenous myths and folk tales and uh oral histories as like entertainment with the uh, like with the background knowledge that it's not real or Mm -hmm. whatever you know Mm -hmm. that it is like somehow entertaining Mm -hmm. so I think that really plays into you know when we approach these discussions about what is and isn't science like all that stuff is running in the sort of cultural background radiation of of how we come to these kinds of discussions something i uh read about while um putting together this episode was um that uh, along the lines of what you were saying anna people someone will like hear a story from um an indigenous culture and they'll be like well they they obviously they believe that literally and so they don't know how the world works um and and in this piece that i uh i read it pointed out that like all of us here in the english-speaking western world talk about the sun rising and setting and we know the sun's not going anywhere we all know the sun's not going anywhere but it's just like a (laughs) thing we say and we've all kind of accepted as a society that like sunrise and sunset has a like scientific a non-literal scientific and social meaning and and just like the idea that there could be other like kind of metaphorical like scientific and social meanings in other cultures is just like that's just weird native superstition but maybe it's just a way of talking about how stuff works that is shorthand for all of the weirdness of the world around us right and i think that there's been this trend of that native knowledge and indigenous knowledge becomes legitimate once Western science can prove that it's legitimate, Mm -hmm. that um, there needs to be some sort of, there's like some sort of test that it has to go through with Western (laughs) science in order for it to be true. And, but like when we look back historically and those things haven't necessarily been separate. Like that Mm -hmm. mainstream science in Europe was often indigenous knowledge that was written and authored by white scientists and colonists who went to colonized lands and relied on the knowledge of the indigenous people that they had enslaved in those places to provide them the knowledge they needed to write their book or to just get around the country that they were trying to like, you know, go through this jungle that they'd never been through. Mm. Um, That all of that knowledge that they relied on to write their books and take this stuff back to Europe all came from unnamed local indigenous people. And so when we talk about like native science being separate from mainstream science, that there have often times been when they have not been separate, it's just been veiled to be separate under the authorship of 
white European or American scientists. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, do you think that uh, white people went to uh, South America and knew what to do with like cacao pods <laughs> and just brought them back seriously, and like though. spontaneously invented chocolate? Of course they didn't. Like, seriously though. Yeah. Also, like, if there'd been no one to say, no, don't eat that plant, they would have all been dead in 10 <laughs> right. seconds flat. Like, let's be real. Right. And I think so, like, when we talk about like, can native science and mainstream science mm-hmm. ever be reconciled or combined? Mm-hmm. Like they have been like yeah. for centuries. It's just that it hasn't been presented that way to the scientific Western scientific community or to the Western public. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and it's, and it's been kind of, and, and native science has been like, um, squished into maybe a, into a mainstream science box or kind of been um, rated for the sort of knowledge that is most useful immediate or understandable to to mainstream scientists. But we uh, in our interview that we have coming up, we are going to talk to someone who is uh, doing the work right now of finding different ways of combining sort of Western ecology practices with uh, with gathering knowledge from indigenous people. And uh, that's, I think, going to be another great example of of how this this is still happening um, and and bearing a lot of really interesting um, scientific fruit. And now we're excited to welcome Kelsey Dokis Jansen to the podcast. Kelsey is a Ph.D. student in indigenous studies at the University of Alberta and she specializes in the intersections between environmental management and indigenous knowledge. She is also part of Indigenous STS, a research group dedicated to looking at science and technology studies from an indigenous perspective. Welcome to the show, Kelsey. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. Great, so to start us off, can you give us kind of a quick introduction to what your research is about? So the research that I've been interested in doing um, has focused on working on collaborative projects with Indigenous communities. I sort of came to it um, by way of a background in environmental and conservation science and was always sort of interested in better understanding how decisions are made around land management and resource development. So I, I grew up in a small rural community in Alberta that sort of borders on Jasper National Park um, and is like the local economy is sort of very dependent on forestry and oil and gas and coal mining. And so it's it's really sort of embedded in the way um, people live. Uh, but you're also right up next to like one of the most beautiful conservation areas in Canada. And so mm-hmm. growing up, I always was interested in sort of understanding the interplay between culture and landscape and decisions we make about the land. And so I studied, went to study environmental science um, and had the opportunity to work with um, an Indigenous community in southern Alberta and started to learn a little bit about the idea around traditional knowledge or sometimes called traditional ecological knowledge. And it was really intriguing to me. Um, And spending time with elders and hunters and talking about their knowledge about the land, I sort of realized there's this sort of other way of understanding uh, the landscape. And so that's what led me to the master's project that I worked on uh, in the Northwest Territories that uh, sought to bring together methods from Western science, but also um, oral histories uh, to better understand caribou movement in relation to impacts of diamond mine development in the region. So yeah, as you said, you um, sort of studied um, the scientific study of tree growth, uh, dendroecology, which is one of those great crunchy words, um, <laughs> with uh, oral histories um, to understand those caribou populations, um, and uh, brought in some archaeological literature into your work. Um, and those are all different kinds of uh ways of gathering knowledge that are seen differently, especially I think in the academy. And so what was it like to bring together those different forms of knowledge? So initially the project um, came out of a long-term collaboration between my master supervisor, um, Dr. Brenda Parley, and the community that uh, we were working with, which is the Lutzelke Dene First Nation. 
And so uh, Lutulke is, is like a small Dene community in the Northwest Territories, and they have a really long history of, of working with researchers from various backgrounds. And so they'd already essentially begun to ask a lot of the questions that formulated the premise of the project that I worked on. And so in my initial review of a lot of the previous work that had been done in the community, um, we sort of identified caribou trails as one important indicator of how caribou were moving across and using the landscape. Um, and that in in past interviews, elders had talked a lot about, you know, how wide or deep a trail was or what kinds of vegetation might be growing across of it across it could really give you an indication of of how long caribou had been in that area. And then I was doing other literature review looking at um, sort of different methods from landscape ecology and conservation biology, looking at uh, mapping species distribution and came across a study that had used the analysis of tree roots that grow were, were growing across the intersection of caribou trails. And so what um, these uh, caribou biologists had done in parts of northern uh, Quebec, uh, which is in eastern Canada, and other parts of the Northwest Territories in and around um, the area that we were working in. So they had gone to a number of caribou trail sites and they had sampled um, roots from black spruce trees uh, where they were intersecting caribou trails. And then by creating uh, cutting cross sections of those roots and then um, identifying trample scars on annual growth rings, they were able to develop a historical record of caribou use in, in that particular area over a period of about 100 years. Essentially what happens is um, caribou, barren ground caribou are the species that we're talking about of caribou. It's a, it's a subspecies of caribou uh, found in uh, the northern part of uh, Canada, but also in the circumpolar north. So in other regions, uh, they're referred to as reindeer. So when people think of like Santa's reindeer, that's the animals that we're talking about. <laughs> Um, and so they, uh, barren ground caribou, uh, are very migratory and exist in very large numbers. And so in the springtime, they're found around the Arctic Ocean where they have their calving grounds. And that's where they raise their young. And then towards the end of the summer, September into August, into September, they start making their way south towards the tree line. Um, which is the sort of the northern extent of the boreal forest before you get into the tundra landscape that sort of people might conceptualize when they think about the north and the Arctic is that sort of barren uh, tundra landscape where, you know, when you get to the ocean and you see polar bears, um, that's a sort of far Arctic extent of the uh, barren ground caribou habitat. Um, and in the fall and winter, they um, come below the tree line. Uh, as their main food source is lichen and it is very abundant in those areas. So they travel in large herds. The, the herd that we were sort of most interested in uh, is called the Bathurst caribou herd. And uh, in the 1990s, the early 1990s, the population estimates were um, in and around 450,000 animals. So you can sort of imagine almost half a million caribou in, in one particular herd. And there's, depending on which biologists you talk to, um, there's up to nine different uh, herds of barren ground caribou that have particular ranges in the northern part of Canada. And so we had a, a really a big uh, spike in the population in the early 1990s. Um, and then since that time, uh, the population has sort of crashed. And the, the most recent estimates are in and around 10 to 20,000 animals. In oh my herd. God. Wow. So it's, it's significant. And Whoa. It's, yeah. it's, it's part of a, in some ways it's part of a natural cycle. So caribou populations in the same way that we understand sort of like rabbit and coyote populations. So you'll see like a mm -hmm. huge, like they're cyclical, right? And they rise and fall and the, and the predator uh, populations sort of follow in behind those those um, spikes in prey population, so that that is in some cases normal to see pretty strong variation. But this is the lowest that this herd has been recorded at, and so there's been quite a bit of concern about caribou population in the Northwest Territories and the Yukon parts of Alaska um, for a number of years. So there's been a real desire to have um, biologists working more closely with Indigenous peoples. 
uh, across the circumpolar north to combine not only Western methods to understand caribou population um, and, and migration and movement, but also to use indigenous methods to better understand what's going on. Um, there's some key drivers around climate and food source and um, the impacts of insects on caribou, uh, as well as predator um, relationships, primarily um, in wolf, wolf populations. Uh, and then there's also uh, the influence of, of harvesting, which there's sort of, so there's the, sort of this tension then between um, sort of some of the, the science around caribou population um, that's done by uh, biologists, which in large part, especially since the mid 1990s has involved uh, collaring caribou with satellite collars to sort of map their movements and establish the ranges um, and then to also help um, in the surveys around population estimates and then with population they also do like aerial surveys so they fly over in airplanes and they take photos and then they count the number of caribou so we have data but when we think about sort of the vast landscape that's being monitored where you know caribou will migrate easily over 2,000 kilometers in a, in a seasonal migration. Trying to survey populations is, is highly difficult and to try to um, map the movements of, of such large herds is very challenging even when we're using satellite collar data. Um, and so there's been a desire from communities in the north uh, to be involved uh, in the collection of new data. And so that was sort of the the context within which this project uh, was conducted. And so sort of circling back, we, we identified caribou trails as something the community is interested in, in talking about to understand caribou movement, found a study that looked at um, caribou trails and the, and the sampling of those tree roots. And so we sort of like took the long way around to get to explaining that when you have hundreds or thousands of animals moving through a particular area, that's what's causing that damage on the tree root on that annual growth ring. And so when you cross section hmm. that root and you count the rings and establish the age of the tree, and then you can see these very visible trample scars on particular growth rings. The biologists who had worked in, in our region had collected over a thousand samples and developed a historic record of uh, caribou use of the particular area over a hundred year period. And so we thought it might be interesting with the community of Wutzelke to look at that method and to talk to elders about what they thought about these kinds of samples and if it would tell us anything useful. And then also what their own memories were um, over the last hundred years, either through their own direct experience or through stories that they had been told by their parents or grandparents um, about caribou use at, at particular sites that are important to the community. So, yeah, so we, we had a number of, a couple of research camps where we were out at these sites uh, with elders and hunters and youth from the community. And we asked them how we should collect the samples. So that was another way that we sort of have Indigenous knowledge and perspectives and ways of doing informing the research practices that the elders were guiding us in, in how to be respectful on the land and um, the appropriate protocol from a Dene cultural perspective was used, which um, includes offering uh, and giving thanks for safe travel and and for the samples being taken and and that we're trying to better understand the caribou and that we we leave the trails um, as undisturbed as possible. So it was, uh, yeah, it was really, uh, it was it was taken up quite uh, well by the community initially. Uh, I was like the caribou sticks girl and people weren't like entirely <laughs> sure what I was talking about. <laughs> um, caribou trails, oh, like the sticks. Yeah, Kelsey and her sticks. Um, <laughs> uh, when we brought back the um, the photos of the cross sections and the preliminary um, data outputs from our analysis and sort of started talking about you know, okay, we had, Kelsey had done these interviews and people talked about, you know, times in the 30s when caribou were very low and there was high wolf numbers. And then we look at the data set and we're like, oh, it's actually really interesting because it sort of looks like 
it, there's a similar pattern in, mm-hmm. in times when there was relatively high numbers of caribou and relatively low numbers of caribou. Then people sort of like understood what we were talking about and they got more excited and then they were like sort of saying, oh, we should like go and take samples at these other places. We took um, 50 individual root uh, pieces and then we cross-sectioned them a number of times, which was quite small relative to the other study that had been done, which was like over a thousand samples. But we did see a similar pattern, which was very interesting. And it was also um, aligned with the the stories and the oral history that we had collected from the elders from the community. I wanted to ask about... Um what your process is for recruiting and working with First Nations elders, and then what has been their reaction to your work? So it's, I think it's always important to sort of remember that it's, each community is unique. And so Mm -hmm. that's something um, that I always keep in mind. And I've been really grateful to work with uh, the community of Futsalke, who has a really, um, long history of working with researchers and they're sort of very well versed in how to train uh young inexperienced master students in uh, <laughs> the ways of ethical research with indigenous communities so i am very grateful for the guidance i received the particular context within Lutulke is that they have um a committee called the wildlife lands and environment committee and that is locally called the wildlife committee and it is comprised of elders and hunters and youth members who are responsible for discussing and supporting decision-making at the community level around all land and resource management um, issues at the community. And so that's the place where um, we would go as a researcher engaged in land-based research to ask for guidance. And so the Wildlife Committee provided us with um, a number of names of elders that we should speak to also sort of building upon the work of my master supervisor who has long-standing relationships in the community she was able to help get us started and then once we're interviewing people then you sort of get this like um saturation where each elder is like oh and like really you need to be talking to this person also right and then you you sort of like check all the boxes because all the people are telling you who to talk to because they recognize the experts in the community and the people who know the most about particular areas so once you get told like eight times to talk to particular people you're like you know you've gotten the right the right elders (laughs) are there particular like common things that you hear from people who are encountering your work who are maybe skeptical of the way that you're sort of bringing together these different types of knowledge? I mean, I don't know if do you encounter that kind of skepticism about this work? I mean, I guess on the whole, I'm mostly met with um, people being interested and thinking um, that they want to like understand more, but in a, in a more like formal sense, we're still currently working on a publication out of the, um, master's work. And it's a a collaborative, um, paper between myself, my supervisor, and then some of the other folks who helped with some of the analysis. And, and so it's like this very interdisciplinary effort to, to sort of provide, uh, a robust presentation of the dendroecology um, process and results, and also the oral history uh, information. And so, what we're sort of finding early on is that by submitting to a paper that is maybe more primarily for a science audience, there's not. It's a, essentially the issue is that there aren't a lot of experts who have experience working in both areas and so you Mm. either have people who are reading it from like a very purely um ecology background or forestry background who are like being quite nitpicky about the dendro data and and then maybe have don't have a sense of how oral history work is done so they they're like oh maybe a survey would be better because then you would have like you know, data that you could present. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> elders who don't speak English generally don't survey very well, but they have very good stories to tell us. So how do we yeah. then translate that in a way that is meaningful for people 
who are not from those disciplinary backgrounds. So I, I, that's sort of what I'm finding is the challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and increasingly what I'm interested in becoming better at doing, I think, is trying to communicate to d- diverse audiences and, and also to be, I think, more clear about how robust the processes are in mm-hmm. Indigenous research practice, because a lot of it is so, it's so nuanced. And so as like, I'm an Indigenous scholar, so my mm-hmm. um, ancestry is from Anishinaabe or Ojibwe uh, people. And so a lot of what I've been taught through my own family and community is, is just about the importance of sitting and listening and watching and and letting things sort of unfold and sort of trying to recognize what's going on without maybe always explicitly asking direct questions all the time. Mm-hmm. And and so a lot of that is what goes on in the interviews is just sort of letting the conversation evolve as opposed to trying to to sort of get at a specific question that you might have as a researcher, but to acknowledge the autonomy and the um, expertise of the elder to guide you they like that to trust that they understand what you're asking and that they're going to tell you yeah. in a maybe more roundabout way and that you have to think a little more deeply about why they've told a particular story so it's it's nuanced and that's hard to get across in like a you know 8000 word paper um, <laughs> which is uh, why I'm just going to do a PhD so I can uh, think about it more. And, uh, yeah, so you can have like multiple thousands of words to <laughs> try to get cash, it out. out. And I, I also wanted to kind of mention too, like part of our process at the community level around the oral history and sort of quote traditional knowledge was um, doing one-on-one interviews, but also doing these sort of like collaborative um, group uh, mapping interviews and like mm-hmm. validation workshops. So it's always really kind of fun to like just lay a map out on a table with a bunch of elders and then just like listen to them talk about all of these places and these stories and sometimes like get into like a little bit of conflict around like what a particular place is called or what happened there and then like see it sort of it's like the peer review process in mm. communities right and so also like how to document that or communicate that in a way for a reader to understand is challenging but when you watch it happen you're like oh yeah that, that's <laughs> <laughs> she yeah. knows what she's talking about and everyone else like you know the sort of body language and like the nodding that's going on around like validating who and and what information is is considered to be accurate are are there some things that uh sort of jumping off of your your comments about in in the more scientific journals them them kind of not understanding oral history are there other things um that or that you wish Western scientists, or I guess more typically trained scientists or biologists, uh, better understood about indigenous approaches to science. I mean, I I get the sense that it's it's changing, just in my own sort of little world and the the um, folks that I'm connected to professionally who work in sort of land resource management, um, people that I went to school with in my undergrad, and also professors that I know. Um, there's sort of a there's been a shift in the in the sort of dialogue, I think, about the role of indigenous knowledge in in the sort of ecological research areas. I, I guess that I'm at least involved in. I can't sort of speak to other um, other areas of scientific research, but I think there's been a shift um, in the in the openness to talk about it. Um, and then, so like, sort of what to better understand, given that shift, given that there's an increased interest in science, in, in scientists, I think, working with communities, the sort of, like, advice, I guess, is to, to recognize that both approaches have something to offer, right? And mm-hmm. there's certain questions that are really best answered by Western scientific approaches, you know, like, mercury content in fish or water like you know we, we definitely want to do some lab analysis around that mm-hmm. um but that indigenous perspectives and working with communities um can 
help develop, I think, really interesting and relevant research questions and can sort of provide this sort of additional socio-cultural and political context within which to interpret our data. And so I think in the end, you sort of get a more holistic picture of what's going on. Um, there's, there's quite a bit written about the sort of, you know, interaction between social and ecological systems and how dependent they are upon one another and that it's, it's sort of intertwined. And I think there's been this tendency in sort of more Western approaches to separate the two out, right? That we have sort of cultural Mm -hmm. systems, we have ecological systems. And so sort of like, again, in my master's, the sort of theoretical background of the uh, program that I was in, which is called risk and community resilience, which is sort of like a sub discipline, I think, I guess, of environmental sociology. There's a lot around social, socio ecological theory and systems theory and how those are intertwined and work together. And so I think for like folks coming from an ecology background to sort of look to some of that theoretical knowledge, if they're, if they're looking to build relationships with community to help them, I think, ask really interesting questions about the land and what's going on in the land and how, how indigenous perspectives can inform uh, better stewardship. Well, Kelsey, I'm really glad that you were able to come talk to us today. And I wanted to thank you for sharing your research with us. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. So if you liked our episode today, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of our segments, you can tweet us at at LadyXScience or use the hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts to sign up for our monthly newsletter, you can visit LadyScience.com. We are an independent magazine and we depend on support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit LadyScience.com slash donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag or on Twitter and Instagram at at LadyXScience. <laughs>